football, boxing, mixed martial arts, hockey, wrestling, the bone-crushing bread and circuses of modern America, violent sports for a violent culture, and the professional athletes who play these games are among the highest paid public figures in American society. A new kind of royalty whose trespasses the masses excuse when they find themselves entangled in controversy. Performance enhancers, recreational drugs, dogfighting, physical violence, sexual assault, and good old-fashioned public hubris. But there was a time when a simpler and more elegant game captured the American imagination and stirred the hopes and dreams of children on the streets of New York and Chicago and in the vast expanse of the nation's heartland. A game of heart and mind, of sacred unspoken rules and unbreakable handshake agreements. A game of perfect graceful geometry and satisfying simplicity. A pastime of sublime stillness punctuated with thrilling outbursts of blinding fast movement. An exercise in honor and civility between cities and towns that were as diverse as the borders that divided and enclosed them. A game of hometown heroics and big city villains. And the men who played it were ordinary folk who emerged out of coal mines and factories, farmlands and inner cities. They were paid a pittance and expected to shine like a freshly minted nickel each time they took to the cool green grass and ran their rugged hands through the brown sands of sweat and tears. And in between the satisfying crack of the smooth wooden bats, the whiz of the yarn-wrapped rubber balls spinning across the cloud-wisp blue skies, above the yearning hands of the grandstands and the gruff slap of worn leather mitts, they might just find a million and one shot at glory and fame. They played a contest as American as the Blue Ridge Mountains themselves. America's pastime. Baseball. But in 1919, barely three months after the Treaty of Versailles, a dark and shameful conspiracy infected the game with such maliciousness that it has not and may never recover from this profound and public shame. A moment where the greed of the team's owners and the desperation of their players ignited a powder keg of avarice that forever spoiled the fundamental decency and honesty of the nation's most closely cherished contest where gangsters and gamblers besmirched the honor of the bleached white uniforms of the soldiers of the stadium. The 1919 World Series between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago White Sox, a sorrowful spectacle that ruined the careers of eight men, including the great shoeless Joe Jackson, a conspiracy that would forever be known as the Black Sox Scandal. I'm conspiracy expert Lee Golden, and on this week's episode of Inside Jobs, we investigate the shame of the Chicago Black Sox. Charles Comiskey, the old Roman, owner of the Chicago White Sox, a tyrant and a miser. Some say his team was even called the Black Sox before the scandal of 1919. For when Comiskey began charging his players to wash their uniforms, the players refused and allowed their white uniforms to become filthy. Comiskey finally did wash the uniforms, and docked the players' pay, of course. But under the infamous reserve clause of Major League Baseball at the time, players were restricted from free agency, tied to their team until they were traded or let go. A hated practice that allowed owners like Comiskey to pay his players almost nothing while he reaped all the profits from their athletic prowess. Under the management of Kid Gleason, the White Sox were the best team in baseball that season, even if they weren't paid like it. 
There was center fielder Oscar Happy Felsch, first baseman Arnold Chick Gandel, shortstop Charles Swede Reisberg, pitcher Claude Lefty Williams, third baseman George Buck Weaver, pitcher Eddie Knuckles and of course, shoeless Joe Jackson, perhaps baseball's greatest superstar of the era. Despite his godlike hitting prowess, he was a simple and modest man, born the son of a sharecropper in South Carolina. Joe had worked as a mill hand ever since he was a boy. As a consequence of his poor upbringing, Shoeless Joe never learned to read or write, and when he finally achieved fame, he couldn't even sign an autograph for his own fans. His wife had to sign most of his memorabilia for him. According to legend, Joe Jackson's own cleats didn't fit him, and when he pulled the tight shoes from his blistering feet and went up to bat with only his socks during a mill game in Greenville, South Carolina, he earned the nickname that would stay with him his entire life, Shoeless Joe. And even though Joe Jackson was arguably the best hitter in the game, he received a salary of only $6,000 a year, the same he had received since 1914. When the Chicago White Sox snatched the American League pennant from Cleveland with a healthy three-and-a-half game lead, they were heavily favored to take the World Series over the Cincinnati Reds, an underdog team that had finished no higher than third place in almost a decade. All eyes were on the two teams as they were pitted against each other in a nine-game series slated to begin October 2nd, 1919. It was a new, longer format for the contest designed to capitalize on the considerable public interest in the series. And even though everyone knew that the championship was the Sox to lose, a strange influx of bets against the venerable Chicago ball club began flooding the gambling world. Chicago, long known to be the cradle and the grave of the nation's most sinister gangsters, was no stranger to the gambling racket, and baseball itself had seen its share of underhand shenanigans. Players who mysteriously dropped balls or failed to touch a base when the odds seemed to favor those who supplemented their income on the side. But no one had ever attempted a conspiracy as broad, audacious, and shameless as the one that ensnared the eight men out of the Chicago White Sox. Someone was attempting to fix the World Series itself. Most people on the inside of the game knew that everything was not on the up and up. Even before the series began, sports journalists were becoming convinced that the Sox were being paid to throw the championship, to take a dive against the Reds. Comiskey, concerned that a rising number of gamblers were beginning to attend ball games, put up signs at the Great Park on Chicago's south side that he had built and named after himself that read, No betting allowed in this park. The writing, as they say, was on the wall. On the second pitch of the first game in the series on October 2, 1919, Knuckles Sakat beanballed Cincinnati leadoff man Maury Rath in the back. It was a prearranged signal to the gamblers that the fix was in the Sox would take a dive. To this day, it is unclear whether the gamblers approached the eight men out or someone on the team approached them, but most historians agree that Chick Gandel was the ringleader on the Sox. Gandel was about to retire and was looking for a way to cushion the sunset of his career. In September of 1920, Gandel met with famed Boston bookie Joseph J. Sullivan at the Hotel Buckminster in Massachusetts. He told Sullivan that he and several of his teammates would throw the series for $100,000 over $1.3 million in today's dollars. Sullivan wanted in, but he needed someone to front the money. He needed the Mafia. He turned to Arnold the Brain Rothstein, the so-called kingpin of the Jewish mob in New York. Rothstein agreed to bankroll Sullivan 80 grand, 40 up front, the rest when the fix was in. 
Rothstein would forever be immortalized in popular culture with F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, wherein he's the basis for the character of Meyer Wolfsheim. When Nick Carraway asks Gatsby why he isn't in jail for fixing the World Series, Gatsby responds glibly, They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. Sullivan, for his part, took most of Rothstein's money himself to make his own bets, giving Chick Gandel only 10 grand. The White Sox quickly learned that the mob was no better than old Comiskey, but perhaps, upon reflection, no worse. As the story goes, Gandel arranged a meeting with his fellow players to plan the details of the conspiracy. Knuckles Sukkote liked the idea and was happy to settle a grudge against Comiskey, who had reneged on a promise of a $10,000 bonus to the seasoned pitcher. Sukkote was smart. He demanded his money from the gamblers up front. Not everyone on the team would be as cunning. Third baseman Fred McCullen caught wind of the conspiracy and demanded a piece of the action. Lefty Williams, Happy Felsch, and Swede Reisberg also found themselves ensnared in Gandel's conspiracy with the gangsters. But if the Chicago White Sox couldn't win without shoeless Joe Jackson, they couldn't lose without him either. And whether or not Joe was part of the conspiracy is the greatest mystery in the entire history of the sport. More baffling than a 30-game slump ended by an inside-the-park home run. Did Joe really participate in the scheme, or did hapless Joe Jackson find himself in over his head with five grand hidden under his pillow? Not understanding what he'd got himself into, it is a conundrum that haunts fans of the game to this day and challenges the fundamental integrity of a time-honored game that so many hold so dearly. Jackson broke a series record in the Fall Classic of 1919 with 12 hits and a 375 batting average. He committed no errors. But there are some who believe that Joe was holding back, not playing his best. If so, it is a testament to the prowess and power of shootless Joe Jackson, that even when he tried to throw a game, he couldn't help but throw a runner out at the plate, which he did. Maybe Jackson did take the bribe, but decided he couldn't do it, couldn't lose. Only one man truly knows, Joe Jackson himself, and he died of a heart attack in 1951 at the age of 64. And then there is the sad story of Buck Weaver, the man who was offered a bribe but wouldn't take it. But he also refused to reveal the conspirators. Buck Weaver was no two-bit pawn, but he also wasn't a snitch. But due to his failure to sell out his fellow players, he will forever be known as one of the eight men out of Black Sock. Over the course of eight games that fateful October, the best players in the sport threw wild pitches, dropped balls, and failed to touch bags. But poor Buck Weaver had the series of his career. He batted 3-2-4 with 11 hits and no errors. Wrote Ross Tenney of the Cincinnati Post, Though they are hopeless and heartless, the White Sox have a hero. He is George Weaver who plays and fights at third base. Day after day, Weaver has done his work and smiled. In spite of the certain fate that closed about the hopes of the Sox, Weaver smiled and scrapped. One by one, his mates gave up. Weaver continued to grin and fought harder. Weaver's smile never faded. His spirit never waned. The Reds have beaten the spirit out of the Sox, all but Weaver. Buck's spirit is untouched. He was ready to die fighting. Buck is Chicago's one big hero. Long may he fight and smile. But despite Weaver's best efforts, the Sox lost the series to the Reds in Game 8. Eight men out over eight games. For their efforts, or rather lack thereof, the Black Sox never did receive their full $100,000. Just like old Comiskey, 
the gangsters and gamblers had taken advantage of the players. A series thrown down the drain, a dark chapter in the legacy of America's pastime. Comiskey betrayed his players, his players betrayed him, and the gangsters betrayed the players. And everyone betrayed the fans, the spectators, the working class families who put down their hard-earned money to show their sons and daughters the beauty of the great sport of baseball, a beauty that would forever be blemished by an insidious conspiracy to poison the one thing that had remained pure and true as the United States emerged from the primordial pond of the 19th century to the sooty, industrialized, revolutionary madhouse of the 20th. Over the next two years, the conspiring players would get their due and bring poor Buck Weaver down with them. No one knows the exact circumstances of the conspiracy, but one fact is for certain. None of the Black Sox would ever play professional baseball ever again. The next season, the Sox returned to their fighting form and found themselves neck and neck with the Cleveland Indians for the pennant, and rumors began to swirl around the team. Did the Sox really throw the World Series? In September 1920, a grand jury was convened to sort out the facts from the rumors. During the proceedings, two men confessed. Eddie Sakote and Shoeless Joe Jackson. The players and the gamblers were all implicated in the conspiracy. According to baseball lore, as the ashamed Joe Jackson emerged from the criminal court building on September 28, 1920, a young boy pushed his way out of the crowd and called out, Say it ain't so, Joe! Shoeless Joe didn't respond. The story is likely apocryphal, but the sentiment is a truer fact than the 90 feet between third base and home plate. The following year, the players went to trial in Chicago. Jackson recanted his confession. Conveniently, his signed confession, along with other key evidence, went missing. It's just as well. If Shoeless Joe Jackson couldn't sign a baseball for a fan, why the hell should he sign a confession? After a brief deliberation on August 2nd, 1921, the jury returned their decision. The Black Sox were found not guilty. But despite their acquittal by jury, the first ever commissioner of baseball, former federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, ultimately decided the fate of the eight men out. A day after they were found not guilty, Kennesaw Mountain Landis banned the Black Sox from the game of baseball for life. Regardless of the verdict of juries, said Landis, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a ball game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball. Almost a century after the Black Sox threw the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds, the legacy of their crimes remains a constant. It was the first of many scandals in the long and storied history of the game. Those eight men were the first of countless more whose reputations would be tarnished by other controversies. Pete Rose, good old Charlie Hustle, Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, all names that carry with them almost as much glory as shame. Men who achieved so much but will forever be remembered for their stumblings. Still, baseball lives on. Fathers still take their sons and daughters to the park 
to relive childhood memories more precious than any amount of money a mobster can muster. The sun still sets over young lovers sitting in the stands arm in arm, and best friends with beer in hand still cheered their hometown heroes as if they were brothers. Cracker jacks and peanut husks still litter the concrete, and soldiers still shed tears when the star-spangled banner booms across the stadium, and the crowd still stretches in the seventh inning to a chorus of take me out to the ball game, insisting that they don't care if they ever get back. And somewhere in the stands, a young kid sits with a glove in hand, hoping for that million and one shot that he might catch a fly ball, while his father dreams that someday he'll see his boy out on that field. And despite the scandals, the conspiracies, the steroids, the fixes and gambles, there is one unspoken rule that no one dares to challenge. That this game is the last thing in the world that just might have a fighting chance of being fair. For Inside Jobs, I'm Lee Golden. Follow the money.